Well, I definitely didn't want to start this sermon by crying. I wanted to smile and say welcome <laughs> to a new sermon series on 1 Timothy. Uh, for the next several months, I didn't say years, but the next several months, uh, most of our Sunday morning worship messages will be from this book, this New Testament book that has 113 verses divided into six chapters. And it would be inappropriate for me in a welcome speech to give you all of the details about 1 Timothy. But it is a book that addresses false doctrine. It addresses the role of men and women in the worship service. It talks about the offices of elders and deacons and possibly even deaconesses. It talks about how to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, it has a long section on caring for widows, that the church has a responsibility to widows. And it even has a word to those who are rich Christians. And I know you're probably thinking, well, that's not me. But in the eyes of God, probably everyone in the United States could be considered a rich Christian. And so the question is, what do you say uh, to a rich Christian? And this book has something to say. It, it was written uh, so that a person may know how he or she is to conduct himself or herself in the household of God. And the household of God is nothing other than the church of the living God. This is a book that deals with church matters. And the reason why it deals with church matters is because church matters matter to God. He's interested in how the church lives and conducts itself. So that's my introduction. And now I turn it over to 1 Timothy and let this book introduce itself to you and to me. And it does that in the two verses that I read for you. In the opening verses of this book, we are introduced, we are welcomed to 1 Timothy. And we learn about its writer, its reader, and a greeting. That's how we're welcomed to this wonderful book. And I want us to see that the writer of 1 Timothy is Paul. And it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that out. That's the very first word in verse 1. Paul, that well-known biblical figure. And when you read the New Testament, you learn about the conversion of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, in chapter 22, in chapter 26. We learned how Paul got saved. And it wasn't because he was searching for God, but instead it was because God came after him. Remember, Paul was committed to persecuting and destroying Christians. And while he was on the Damascus road, God interrupted his life. Christ intervened in his life and saved Paul so that Paul became the servant of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. 
Obviously, it includes 1 Timothy. And when we say that Paul wrote this book, we really do mean that. There are certain people who are brilliant and smart, and they study these books of the Bible. And some of them have come away with the amazing conclusion that Paul didn't write this book, even though it has his name here. They said it's somebody pretending to be Paul or a disciple of Paul. And I say hogwash. Uh, this is Paul, the well-known Paul of the New Testament. There really is no one else like Paul on the pages of Scripture, the New Testament, from the standpoint of being a godly Christian. He stands out as the number one Christian on the pages of Scripture. Paul wastes no time in telling us that he is an apostle. You got people today who will tell you that. You can get online, you can watch YouTube, etc., and you can read about apostle so and so and apostle this, apostle that, and I'll say hogwash to that also. <laughs> but Paul was an apostle, a real apostle, a legitimate apostle. He could have introduced himself in several ways. He could have just simply said, I'm Paul. And Timothy obviously would know who he was. Uh, he could have said, I'm a bondservant or a slave uh, because that's what Paul was in relationship to God and to Jesus Christ. He could have said, I'm an ex-prisoner because Paul did spend time in prison. But Paul chose none of those ways to identify himself. He identified himself as an apostle. And when you read his 13 letters, that's normally the way that he introduced himself. And he wasn't trying to brag. He wasn't trying to elevate himself. He was just reminding the recipients of the letter what his role is in regards to the church, the universal church. Paul says, I am an apostle. And even though he was a Johnny-come-lately apostle, that is, he wasn't with the 12 when Jesus selected them. He came on the scene afterwards. But even though he was a Johnny-come-lately apostle, he is a, an apostle in every sense that those 12 apostles were. He is a true, genuine apostle, a sent one. And the question is, whose apostle is he? Is he an apostle of a church? Is he an apostle of a certain group of individuals? Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. It's interesting that in these first two verses, three times, Paul will refer to Christ Jesus. And it just reminds us that this was a man who said, for me to live is Christ. Christ was the center of his life. Christ was the circumference of his life. His life was all about Christ. And Paul says, my relationship, my apostleship is in relationship to Christ Jesus. Now for you and for me, when we refer to Jesus, we might refer to him as Jesus. We might refer to him as Lord. We might refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ. But Paul here refers to him as Christ Jesus. 
And what he's emphasizing, what he's stressing is that this historical Jesus, this one whose birth we celebrated on Christmas Sunday and on Christmas Day, that this baby in the manger, the God-man, is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And for Gentiles, that might not be a big thing, but for a Jew, that was a significant thing, that this Jesus was the long-awaited, anointed Messiah. He is the Christ. And remember when Peter answers Jesus, when Jesus says, Peter, and to the other disciples, who, who do people say that I am? And Peter responded by saying, thou art the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And so here, Paul is saying he's an apostle, not of just anyone. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's who he belongs to, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, how did he become an apostle? Well, I'm glad that Paul tells us, Paul tells us in this verse that he became an apostle according to the commandment of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope. Typically when Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he lets the individuals know who are reading his letter or the churches who are reading his letter. At the beginning of his books, he begins by saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God. It's God's will, he would often tell individuals, that I am an apostle. It's not my own choosing. It's not something that I decided to pursue and go after. No, Paul says that he's an apostle typically by the will of God. And in fact, Paul went to great lengths to make sure that no one could accuse him of being a self-made or self-appointed apostle. When he writes to the churches of Galatia, in that first verse he says, I'm an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul went to great lengths to say, look, I'm not appointed by men to the position that I hold in regards to the church. It's not a group of men. They didn't come together and pray for me and lay hands on me. Paul says, no, it's through Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's the Father's will. It's the Son's will. But here Paul doesn't mention the will of God. What he does mention is the command, the commandment of God. And you see that will, that desire that God had for Paul to be an apostle expressed itself in God commanding Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul did something with that command. He obeyed it. He followed it. He lived it out. God didn't just simply order him or give him a decree or give him a command. Paul obeyed God's will for his life. And so he says, I, I want everyone to know 
that I am an apostle. I am an appointed one to the universal church. I'm part of the foundation of the church. I represent Jesus Christ. And it's not by my own doing, but I was commanded to be an apostle. And I obeyed. And that's what we're to do with the commandments of God, aren't we? We're not just to listen to the commands of God, are we? Not just to be informed about them. When we learn the commandments of God and what he wants us to do, what should our response be? The same as Paul, we ought to obey the commandments of God. We ought to live our lives and order our steps the way that God tells us to do it. And so Paul says, I'm Christ Jesus' apostle. And that came about because God the Father and God the Son commanded me, and I bowed to the command of God. And that's why I use this title, apostle. I'm a sent one. But it's interesting when Paul talks about where this commandment comes from. He says it's the commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. And it can be easy to skip over that. But I think Paul wants us to know something about God the Father. He wants us to know this morning something about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Paul refers to God as Savior. Now, we as Christians, who do we normally refer to as Savior? Jesus. He's our Savior, right? I mean, isn't that what the angel said to the shepherds in the field in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that we talked about a couple Sundays ago? The angel said to the shepherds, what? Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you, who? A Savior. And who is that Savior? Who is Christ the Lord. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is our Savior. And normally when we hear that term Savior, we think of Jesus. And even in that passage in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, it talked about the fact that he made purification for sins. That is, he's the Savior. When men and women are dead in trespasses and sin, praise God, there's hope. There's a Savior. And, and, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. But by his person and his work, he has made it possible for each human being to be saved from their sins. But in our text, it's not Christ Jesus, our Savior, but it's who? It's God. Just like Christ Jesus is our Savior, so is God. And that is wonderful to know. He's the architect. He's the planner. He's the one who brought about the possibility that you and I can be saved from our sins. And so Paul when he refers to God, God is not just God, but God, Paul says, is Savior. 
And he's going to say that again in chapter 2, verse 3. And then he'll say in chapter 4, verse 10, these words. God is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. Everyone can be saved, but he is the true Savior of believers. God, our Savior. Paul says, I'm an apostle because of the commandment of God. My Savior, Paul said, the, the reader's Savior, the believer's Savior. But the question is, is he your Savior? Is God your Savior? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith only in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can say, God, our Savior, God, my Savior. But the commandment also comes from Christ Jesus, from Jesus who is the Messiah. And when Paul refers to Christ Jesus, he says at the end of verse 1, he's our hope. He's the one who is the center of our hope, the embodiment of our hope. All of our confident expectation regarding the future centers on Christ Jesus. He, he, he's our hope. And, and outside of him, there is no hope. Uh, you can go bow down to Buddha or no, to Muhammad or whoever it might be. You can bow down to a political system, but our hope is in Christ Jesus. And so often today, we have people wanting to put their hope in Trump or in Biden, or they want to put their hope in a political system or movement. But Christ Jesus is our hope for the Christian. He's our hope. He's our hope. And that's why we sing this song on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other sink is sinking sand. But that's not the only song that we sing. We sing the fact that our hope is built on Jesus. It's wrapped up in him. It's centered in him. And so my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I hope that's true of you at the beginning of 2024, that Christ is not just Paul's hope, not just Timothy's hope, but Christ is your hope. That all of your confident expectation centers in him. When you think about the, the destiny, your destiny, the destiny of this world, it all centers in Christ our hope. So welcome to First Timothy. Uh, its writer is Paul. But there's something else I want you to see, and that is the recipient of First Timothy is Timothy. 
Paul writes at the beginning of verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. When you read the letters of Paul, you, you see a special relationship between Paul and Timothy. And it's interesting because Paul is an older man. Timothy is a younger man. Paul is an apostle. Timothy is not. But when you read through Paul's letters, he shows his fond affection and his love for this individual that is named Timothy. Sometimes he refers to Timothy as brother, as a fellow worker, as God's fellow worker, and as a bondservant. But, but to stress that relationship, that kinship that Paul and Timothy has, Paul will refer to Timothy as one who is a beloved child that is dearly loved, one who is, is a faithful and dependable child, one who is a true child. And if you want to get a glimpse even further into the relationship between Paul and Timothy, let's read Philippians 2, 19 through 24. Paul refers to Timothy as his soul brother. He said, I have no one else like Timothy, no one else who's of kindred spirit, who would genuinely care for the people of God. And then he goes on and says that Timothy served me. Paul says he served me like a child serving his father. One of the special relationships found on the pages of the New Testament is the one between Paul and Timothy. And, and it encourages us and reminds us that we should be building relationships here on earth. That God does not expect us to be isolated Christians. God does not expect us to be all by ourselves. When it comes to our text, Paul stresses the fact that Timothy is a child, yes, but a true child, a genuine child, a legitimate child. Timothy is not some counterfeit. Timothy is not some illegitimate child, but he's real. He's genuine. And, and that's important to know. Because in this letter, Timothy's got to deal with some church matters. He got to deal with some hardships. And he does that as the representative of the Apostle Paul. And Paul wants those that Timothy has to deal with to know this is not some phony, this is not some illegitimate child of mine. Timothy is the real deal, he's the real thing. He's 100% child of mine. And Paul's not even stressing that he's responsible for Timothy coming to faith. He's stressing the fact that Timothy is like Paul. And that Timothy can represent Paul in Ephesus where Paul has left him. Timothy is indeed the recipient of the letter. But I want to say to us that this letter is not just for Timothy. It goes beyond Timothy. Even though you basically read the whole letter, and Timothy is the center point. But when you get to the very last verse, 
Paul does a strange thing, but something that he normally does. He extends grace to the reader, but he says, grace be with you all. Grace be with you. And he doesn't use the singular for Timothy, but the plural. Think about that. Paul has been addressing this letter to Timothy all throughout these chapters. He gets to the very end and extends a benediction and he says, grace be with you. And when he says you, I'm not just talking about you, Timothy, but I'm talking about the church that you are ministering to, Timothy, the church in Ephesus. This is a letter not just for Timothy. Sometimes uh, when we think about 1 Timothy, we hear the phrase pastoral epistle. It's one of the pastoral epistles along with 2 Timothy and Titus. And we think, well, this is a letter for pastors. And you might be saying, I don't need to be reading a letter to pastors. I'm not a pastor. No, Timothy was not, quote, a pastor. He was an apostolic representative. He represented Paul. And he represented Paul to the church at Ephesus, and he was to deal with church matters. And Paul wants us to know, and the church at Ephesus to know, that this letter is not just for Timothy. It's primarily for him, but it's also for you, church at Ephesus, and it's also for us, church at 1215 Marlboro Avenue in Inglewood. This is a letter for us. And if we ignore this letter, we can't be the church that Jesus Christ said he would build. So hopefully you're feeling welcome to this letter. Paul is the writer. Timothy is the recipient. But the last thing that I want you to see is that the greeting in 1 Timothy is a triad of blessing. When you come to this greeting, it's not just, hello, how you doing? Good to write to you, etc. It's a true greeting. Uh, and sometimes in letters in that day, all you had to say was greetings. And that was sufficient. But Paul, as a Christian, as an apostle, as he wrote to churches and to individuals, he went beyond that. And as he writes to Timothy in particular, he realizes that Timothy has a daunting task. He has a challenge before him to get church matters in order. And he says, Timothy, I'm extending something to you. I know you need some blessings. And he identifies those blessings as grace, mercy, and peace. Those are the blessings that he wants his son, Timothy, to experience. Grace and mercy and peace. Now, this is unusual. Normally, when Paul writes to a church or to an individual, he says, grace to you and peace. That's his standard greeting. In 10 of his letters, he says, grace to you and peace. In one other letter, he says to Titus, grace and peace to you. But twice, Paul differs from that. 
And one of the times that he differs from that is in 1 Timothy. Grace and peace is normally the way that Paul will begin his letter, the greeting that he would give. And it lets the people know they need grace. They need peace. And not just in a salvific sense, not just to be saved, but they need grace and peace in order to live their Christian life. And so Paul would normally, every letter says, grace to you. The, the thing that I can extend to you, the thing that you need as Christian is grace, God's unmerited favor. You need God's enablement and God's help to live the way that he wants you to live. And so Paul would say grace to you. And then he would also say peace. The Hebrew idea is shalom. It was inner tranquility. We know that as Christians we have peace with God. But the question is, are we experiencing the peace of God? Some of you, your hearts are troubled. Some of you are filled with anxiety. But the Bible tells us that we can experience the peace of God deep within our souls so that it surpasses all understanding, that it guards our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. And, and Paul is saying to his churches that he writes to, to individuals that he writes to, not only do I extend grace to you, but peace. I want you to have a soul that is at rest from anxiety and worry and discouragement. That's not wishful thinking. That's Bible. Here's the great apostle Paul. Not once, not twice, but basically in every letter that he writes, including 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In all 13 letters, he extends grace and peace to those that he's writing to. God wants you, if you're a child of God, to experience his grace and to experience his peace. Our hearts do not have to be troubled. Our hearts do not have to be anxious. I'm not saying that the world won't be upside down to us. I'm not saying that there might not be chaos around us, but I'm saying deep within our soul, we can experience the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. And so it is significant to note that in every letter that is written by Paul that's found in the New Testament, that he extends grace and peace to the reader. But there's something different here. Paul mentions mercy. <laughs> he says, Timothy, I don't just want you to experience God's grace. I don't just want you to experience God's peace. But, but Timothy, I, I want you to experience God's mercy. Kind of the Old Testament idea of this word is what I read in Psalm 100, loving kindness. It's God's love that is kind and it's kindness that is loving. 
And when you get to the New Testament, it also carries the idea of compassion and pity. It speaks of someone who's in a miserable condition, in a wretched condition, who can't do anything about it. But, but, but God can do something about it. His mercy can minister to that individual. God is rich, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4. He's rich in mercy. He doesn't run out of mercy. Your problems, no matter how big they are and how deep they are and how long they are and how large they are, they can't exhaust the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy. And so Paul says, Timothy, I, I feel like I just need to extend God's mercy to you. Grace is wonderful. Peace is marvelous. But you need mercy to deal with these church folks. It, these church matters, you got to rest. You need mercy. And Paul knew something about mercy. Uh, really, everybody who's saved knows something about mercy. Later on in this chapter, Paul will say how he was shown God's mercy. Paul says, I was a blasphemer before I got saved. I was a persecutor before I got saved. I was a violent aggressor. But God had mercy on him. I read that this morning, early in the morning, and just started to weep. Because I came to verse 17 where he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, when God experienced, uh, when you experience God's mercy, when he shows mercy to you, when you remember the wretched condition that you're in, we're in, and God is merciful to you. And Paul said, God was merciful to me. He even put me into service. Put me into service. Allowed me to be an apostle. That was nothing but the mercy of God. And my friends, we don't just need mercy at salvation. We need mercy every day of our walk with God. Anyone here like the tax gatherer who came and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Anybody here like that? Anybody here like blind Bartimaeus who was on that road in Jericho and Jesus was passing by? He didn't just say it once. He didn't say it just twice. But he kept crying out, God, Jesus, son of David, be merciful to me. If you don't think you need God's mercy, I can't help you. We need his grace, we need his mercy, we need his peace. Where does this mercy come from? I've already really told you, but Paul tells us that it comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? He refers to God as Father. Some of us don't have an earthly father around anymore. Some of us might have had a a miserable 
bad earthly father. Some of us might not, might not even know who our father is. But as a Christian, it is wonderful to know that God is the father. And he's the child of God's father. And grace, mercy, and peace come from this father. But it doesn't just come from God the Father, Paul says at the end of verse 2, that it comes from Christ Jesus. And who is Christ Jesus? Paul, he's my Lord, Paul says. Timothy, he's your Lord. He's the Lord of the Christians who make up the church at Ephesus. He's the Lord of the Christians under the sound of my voice. Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the question is, does your life reflect that Christ Jesus is your Lord, that he's your master? Does your life reflect the fact that you're sold out to do his will? One commentator said, if you do not crown him Lord of all, you do not crown him Lord at all. You remember last Sunday? God wants a life of total commitment. He's not into sharing you. Welcome to 1 Timothy. When I was a young adult, the church that I was a part of oftentimes would go to other churches on Sunday afternoon. We'd go to Sunday school, right, Glenn? Sunday school go to the worship service, and then we would go to the afternoon worship service, and then have the nerve we had to come back to evening service. Now, we don't do that. No, we, no. I wouldn't even dare try to do that at Fairview. But when I was a young adult, that's what we did. We would go to these uh, other churches and visit them, and, and it was always a good time, so to speak. And there was always someone at the host church who would welcome the visiting churches. And somebody from the visiting church would have to stand up and respond to the welcome. Well, First Timothy has extended a welcome to you. Let me tell you what your response should be. I'm not going to ask you what your response is, but let me tell you what your response should be. You should respond by reading this book on a regular basis. It only takes about 20 minutes to read 1 Timothy. You can listen to it, audio version. So start reading this book on a regular basis. Respond by obeying the message of this book. Tell God, I'm going to be a doer of your word. That when I come across a command from me, I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. When Paul received the command to be an apostle, he obeyed. Respond with correct theology. Doctrine does matter. And if you didn't catch it, in these two verses, Paul teaches us doctrine. He says that God is our Savior and God is the Father. That's doctrine. Embrace that. Believe that. Trust that. And he says Christ Jesus is our hope. 
and he's our, our Lord. Is that your view of Christ? Is that your doctrine of Christ, that he is your hope and he is your Lord? Respond to the welcome of 1 Timothy by praying. This past Wednesday night at Bible study and prayer meeting, I put in the request. And the request is very simple, that God would use this book to shape and refine Fairview so that we might be the church that God wants us to be. And that's not going to happen just because somebody preaches or just because somebody reads 1 Timothy. That's going to happen because we cry out to God and ask him to use his living word in our lives. So repeatedly ask God to use this book in our church life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these opening words of 1 Timothy that welcomes us to this book. Thank you for helping us to learn about Paul as the writer and Timothy as a recipient in this marvelous greeting of this triad blessing of grace, mercy, and peace. Father, turn our hearts toward you. Turn our hearts toward your word. Use this portion of scripture in our life to help Fairview to be the church that you have called it to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.